BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck uh, Schumer go to the White House today to talk infrastructure. Hey, don't they know the only thing Donald Trump wants to build is a damn wall? Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is a Thursday. Tuesday. Make it Tuesday. Don't rush the week. Tuesday, April 30, last day of April 2019. So good to see you today. And thanks for joining us. It is the Bill Press Show. Of course, that's me, but that's also you. We do it together. We're all part of it here as we uh, spend the next two hours tackling the news of the day, the big news and the little bit of news with the help of our guest, a great lineup of guests today. And lots to talk about. Congress is back in town and uh, Donald Trump greeted their arrival by filing another lawsuit to try to block House Democrats from doing their investigations. Uh, he filed this lawsuit, remember he filed one last week, against the members of the uh, House Oversight Committee, particularly the chairman, Elijah Cummings of the House Oversight Committee. This lawsuit filed against two banks, uh, Capital One and a Deutsche Bank, uh, to prevent their f- releasing any of Donald Trump's tax, I'm sorry, not tax returns now, we're talking financial records, financial records of the Trump Organization, uh, which the committee wants to look into for possible ties to Russia or Ukraine or uh, any other unsavory characters. Donald Trump doesn't want us to see that information. He's suing to block it. Just one of the big stories we'll be following. And yes, Joe Biden made it official yesterday, launching his campaign, taking on Donald Trump from the beginning out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All of that to talk about, all of that we want to hear from you about. So send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. When you think about Indonesia, what is the capital? The capital city of Indonesia is 
Oh, God. I don't know. I, I, did, I should have warned you that we are going to do a geography beat. Well, it, it doesn't matter because it's about to change. The capital city oh, is there you go. Jakarta. Jakarta. Uh, okay. And, right. But the thing that is, makes sense. they are going to change the capital city. They're going to move it. Why would they move it, Bill? Because Jakarta is sinking into the ocean. Climate change. Climate change has come to Indonesia, and wow. it's so bad, in fact, like I said, that they have to move it, move the capital city Whoa. to a, a place just outside of what's called the Java Island. Java Island. And so they have to move it because climate change is so real, and flooding has hit Jakarta in such a serious, terrible way uh, that they can't conduct business there anymore, so they have to move. Is that just, just, just it's such a depressing story? It is a depressing story, and you know, there are hundreds of islands that are disappearing in the South Pacific, right? Oh, yeah. In fact, some of these island kingdoms are just no longer going to exist. Yeah. They're in the process now of yeah. moving people, shutting them down. Yeah. But, of course, there's no such thing as rising sea levels. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I spent a couple uh, stories yesterday talking about how much money Avengers Endgame made. Uh, yes. uh, Bernie Sanders actually talked about it yesterday. Uh, he didn't know he was an Avengers fan. Uh, but he actually proposed that Disney take all those profits. Remember, they made $1.2 billion worldwide. And Bernie Sanders put out a statement that said, oh, what would be truly heroic is if Disney used its profits from Avengers to pay all of its workers a middle-class wage instead of paying its CEO, Bob Iger, $65.6 million, which is over 1,400 times as much as the average worker at Disney makes. Yeah. Good for Bernie. Yeah. I mean, he, he and Elizabeth Warren keep, keep uh, pushing on that, that. I think there were some 60 Fortune 500 firms that paid zero taxes last year. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And look, they made that much money with this movie. You can pay your workers better. This is the Bill Press Show. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein resigns. Goodbye, good riddance. Yeah. Anybody thought he was a good guy got fooled, and I was one of them. Hey, hello, everybody. Here we go. Tuesday. Tuesday, April 30. It is the Bill Press Show. Tuesday, April 30, 2019. Last day of April. We are well into spring. It is the Bill Press Show, and you are very, very much a part of it. Which we appreciate your climbing on board here on this Tuesday morning as we uh, take off to take a look at the big news of the day. Well, all the news of the day, the big and the little stories of the day, as much as we can cram into two hours with the help of our guests and with your help as well as you join us online, on the radio, and on television. Great lineup of guests today, one of our good friends, uh, Ginger Gibson from Reuters. He's covering the 2020 campaign for Reuters. We'll be uh, in studio with us. John Allen from NBC News here, their senior political correspondent from NBC News. Here is a friend of Bill for the second hour for all of us. And Elena Plott, who covers the White House for Atlantic Magazine, will be joining us as well. 
And that brings us to you, wherever you are in this great land of ours, wherever you are around the planet online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. We're joining you on the radio, of course, statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks. And Chicago, look at you, looking good today. Beautiful day in Chicago, starting off on WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago, and world nationwide, coast to coast on Free Speech TV, part of the Direct TV network. Yep, where do we start? We start with Rod Rosenstein today, Deputy Attorney General, announced uh, his resignation yesterday in a letter to Donald Trump, uh, where he uh, said he is going to step down. It's anticipated that he would... Um, Step down. We, we knew he was going to, as soon as there was a, an attorney general confirmed, he was going to leave. He stayed on a little longer than we thought. Um, he has said that he will leave office on the 11th of May. Um, Rod Rosenstein. Just looking for um, here, if, if stick with me for a second, if I can find the letter he wrote. It is dripping just dripping with um, praise for Donald Trump. And yeah, here's the thing about Rosenstein. I'm glad to see him go. And I don't think he served this country well at all. We thought, at one time, I thought Rosenstein was the, uh, the straight arrow here. He was the guy that you could trust in the Justice Department. Remember, he is the guy, for, uh, Donald Trump wanted to fire him, which, which made me like him uh, at one point. Donald Trump, he's the guy, Rod Rosenstein, when, Jam when um, Donald Trump fired James Comey. Rosenstein is the one who went in uh, and, and, and kept the investigation going by naming Robert Mueller special counsel. And that's when, according to the Mueller report, Donald Trump told Jeff Sessions, I'm effed, uh, this is the end of my presidency, that we have a special counsel, blah, blah, blah. So it makes Rosenstein, at that point, just that one little facet, right, of his uh, career looked good. At the same time, when you look at the totality, it's pretty clear that Rosenstein was in Donald Trump's pocket from the very beginning. And let me give you three examples. Number one, this is Rosenstein before he appointed Robert Mueller special counsel. He's the one, at Donald Trump's request, who wrote that letter to Trump signed by him, Rosenstein, and Jeff Sessions, Attorney General, saying that Trump had to fire James Comey because Comey was too mean to Hillary Clinton. That when Comey said, we're not going to charge her with anything after invite, uh, investing, spending a year and a half investigating the her email, use of a private server for her emails, remember James Comey came out, uh, this was the summer of 2016, said we're not going to file any charges, because she didn't do anything illegal, and then he went on to slam her for careless behavior, whatever. Um, really hurt her, hurt her campaign. So Rosenstein wrote the letter saying because of that, Comey had to be fired, and Donald Trump fired him. It was a phony letter. Rosenstein knew why Donald Trump wanted to fire James Comey, because Comey would not drop the investigation into possible collusion and obstruction of justice. So Rosenstein gave Donald Trump the cover. It's a phony letter, but Donald Trump was able to use it to pretend that's why he fired Comey. Why would Rosenstein do that? He knew that wasn't the real reason for firing James Comey, but he did it. Again, 
in Donald Trump's pocket. And then flash forward to, so he gets Mueller in the job, flash forward to when Mueller finishes his job, what does Rosenstein do? He sits down with Bill Barr after Rosenstein for two years, I mean, uh, uh, Mueller for two years says, on this obstruction thing, there are 10 different cases where Donald Trump tried to obstruct justice. If I could clear him of any wrongdoing, I would, but I can't at the same time. My hands are tied. I can't, under Department of Justice rules, I can't charge him with a crime because I'm not allowed to indict the president of the United States. That's Mueller's conclusion after two years. Rosenstein, after like two minutes, sits down with Bill Barr and writes that, helps him write that four-page summary where the two of them together say, Barr and Rosenstein, we can't charge with uh, uh, Donald Trump with uh, uh, obstruction of justice because he didn't do anything wrong. They clear the president right away after Mueller spent two years and says he was unable to clear the president of obstruction of justice. And then we remember Bill Barr gives his little news conference after the four-page summary when the full report comes out. Bill Barr gives his little news conference where he lies about what the report's not out yet. That's in the afternoon. In the morning, Barr gives his news conference. Remember, this is just a couple of weeks ago. And with Rod Rosenstein standing right in back of him, Bill Barr says, here's what the report says. It totally clears the president. No collision, no collusion, no obstruction of justice, total exoneration. Not true. Report turned out to be to say just the opposite. Rod Rosenstein standing there like a Boy Scout in back of the attorney general while the attorney general just lies, lies, lies to the American people. So Rosenstein was in on the fix. He was in on the fix at the beginning and at the end of the Mueller investigation. And finally, it came out yesterday, or maybe, they, yeah, yesterday, that Rosenstein, when he appointed Mueller, Trump was so pissed off and so frightened, so scared of what might happen, that he wanted to fire Rosenstein. Rosenstein gets wind of this, and he calls the president and begs him to stay on the job. And he assures Donald Trump that he will take care of things for Donald Trump. The phrase that the New York Times reports, and nobody has denied it is, that Rosenstein told Donald Trump, quote, <clears throat> I can land this plane. Meaning, don't worry, Mr. President. I'll take care of you. This report is not going to do you any harm. I'm the one you can trust to bring it to a safe landing. Which he did. Which he did. So you want to you want to uh, you want to put the blame on nothing happening out of the Mueller report. And a soft landing for the Mueller report for Donald Trump? Yeah, I think you can blame uh, two people, Bill Barr and Rod Rosenstein. And Rod Rosenstein, the one who's been there for the last two years as an acting attorney general. Um, so, yeah, he's gone as of May 11 uh, from the Department of Justice. Uh, but I believe history books will look back on Rod Rosenstein, not as somebody who served uh, the American system of justice, but somebody who actually did everything he could to undermine it. 
the end of Rod Rosenstein. Bob, Bob, Joe, with um, with uh, Bill Barr right alongside of him. So it was uh, announced day yesterday for Joe Biden in Pittsburgh. Uh, Joe Biden reminding his crowd uh, in Pittsburgh that um, Pennsylvania was key. We'll get to that in just a second. But the former vice president uh, has determined to make Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the center of his campaign. His campaign headquarters is going to be in Philadelphia, has been opened in Philadelphia. And he launched his campaign yesterday at the other end of Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh. Um, First of all, starting with the inevitable the statement everybody's got to make, here's why I am running. The first is to restore the soul of the nation. And the second is to rebuild the backbone of this nation. And the third is to unify this nation. We always do better when we act as one America. And right from the beginning, Joe Biden is clearly trying to make this, uh, or painting, directing his campaign as a general election campaign. Didn't talk about the other Democratic candidates. He just focused in on Donald Trump. He's a contrast to Donald Trump in every way, including telling the truth. We Democrats and we independents who have the same view have to choose hope over fear, unity over division, and maybe most importantly, truth over lies. He made that uh, announcement in a Teamster Hall in uh, Pittsburgh at a... At a uh, Rally sponsored by the Firefighters Union, as we mentioned yesterday. Uh, President Harold Shadeberger was there, as well as a lot of people wearing yellow T-shirts, not yellow vests, yellow T-shirts, Firefighters for Biden, uh, and also sponsored by the United Steelworkers, and uh, President Leo Girard of the Steelworkers was there as well. Um, This is Joe Biden's base. His message is, I can bring back the workers uh, across the Rust Belt who fled the Democratic Party for Donald Trump, because he spoke to them, Joe Biden, yesterday making a point of talking about how it was the workers of America, the members of the union standing in front of him, who built this country. The country wasn't built by Wall Street bankers, CEOs, and hedge fund managers. It was built by you. It was built by the great American middle class. Indeed. So Joe Biden off and running one of 20 Democratic candidates, of course, uh, by the way, Pete Buttigieg yesterday said uh, 20 candidates might be a few more. Hey, more the merrier. There's something like 20 of us in the mix now. I don't think any one of us is competing against any one other. Uh, I think uh, a campaign like mine is in many ways competing against the whole field. And uh, the more voices I think are in this race, the better. Uh, two little indications of um, the uh, success of the launch of Joe Biden, I think, number one, Overnight, he raised $6.3 million, $6.3 million, which was more than any other candidate raised uh, overnight. Of course, he'd been preparing to do that, asking people to hold off, give your money the first day I announced, but that's what the campaign does to make a big bang. They succeeded in that. And secondly, according to uh, the Politico Morning Consult Paul poll this morning, Joe Biden got a, a six-foot, six-foot, I'm sorry, a six-point bounce when he announced uh, the poll as of this morning of the front runners of among people who say they will vote in the primary. Okay. These are Democrats across the country who plan to vote in the primary. Uh, Politico morning consult this morning says Joe Biden, 36, Bernie Sanders, 
22. Biden with a 14-point lead over uh, Bernie Sanders. It was eight points before the launch. Third place, Elizabeth Warren with nine. And fourth place, right behind Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg up at eight points. Uh, pretty impressive for Buttigieg to be there in fourth place, ahead of uh, Cory Booker, ahead of Amy Klobuchar, uh, ahead of Kirsten Gillibrand, and some of the other candidates you might think uh, from the United States Senate might be up there. Meanwhile, today, moving right along, big meeting at the White House today on infrastructure, uh, which is going to be very interesting. This is a meeting, remember the last time that uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi went to meet with the president? Oh, yeah. He oh, we invited, all remember that. He invited the TV cameras to stay there for the entire meeting. Uh, he began by insulting Nancy Pelosi, and she fired back at him. And uh, basically, it was almost almost got to the point, that, and that was about immigration, where uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi just basically said, almost, almost got to the point of saying, Mr. President, nothing we can agree on. Um, let's get out of here. Uh, so this is on infrastructure. It's going to be the Speaker and the Senate leader and then other leading Democrats, members of committees. And the real challenge is going to be, will Donald Trump put up, be willing to put up real money? Remember, he talked about a trillion dollars for infrastructure when he was, when he was uh, running for office as a candidate, Donald Trump. Um, and the Democrats are going to ask for real money for that trillion dollars. It can't just be getting Bechtel or other companies to say, we're going to build some roads, we're going to build some new sewer plants. No, this is government money to, 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 to trigger and to spark this massive new job effort in building infrastructure. Number one, it's got to be real money. Number two, there's got to be a commitment to renewable energy. This is not just not building new coal-fired power plants, but new solar, new wind, new hydrothermal, and uh, en renewable energy projects. Um, and number three, to pay for these projects and to pay for this infrastructure, Donald Trump's going to have to be willing to take back some of those tax cuts uh, that were passed the first in, in his first year's presidency. Tax cuts which benefit. 98% of the benefits go to the wealthiest people in this country. So there's a lot to talk about today. There's a great need for infrastructure. Going to be interesting to see if Donald Trump will meet them even halfway. And also interesting to see if Donald Trump is going to stick to the topic. What some people expect is once they get there, he'll bring the cameras in, he'll leave the cameras there, and then he'll get off on the border and the wall and asylum and what Maxine Waters doing and what's Jerry Nadler doing. Why are you letting him do, have these investigations? It's all over. Uh, and accuse them of wanting to impeach him. This could really go off the rails. It's going to be interesting uh, Interesting to see. Uh, Larry Kudlow yesterday, the president's uh, chief economic advisor, said, however, um, taking the high road, that he's looking forward to a good meeting on infrastructure. It'll be a good sit down. It'll be a good discussion. There are a lot of thoughts out there, and we want to hear what they have to say about it, and um, we'll react to that. But no, we're not. We're not coming in with a blueprint. No. 
by the way, back to uh, back to <laughs> Joe Biden for just a second. You would think, right? There are twenty candidates among the Democrats. You'd think Donald Trump would just say, "Okay, this is fun to watch," and just stay on the sidelines and see who beats up on on whom and what they talk about, and just basically ignore them and do his thing. He can't do it. He cannot stop. It's got to be all about him, man. People are paying attention to all the different Democratic candidates that are running for president. And he hates it. And he hates it. Yeah, right. So while he is, um, while Joe Biden was having his, uh, even before, even before Joe Biden had his big uh, rally yesterday, uh, Donald Trump was tweeting, he not only went after uh, Joe Biden, he also went after the union members, particularly the firefighters who were supporting him. Uh, he tweeted out, first of all, the media, fake news, is pushing Sleepy Joe hard. That's his nickname for Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe. What was it? Sleepy Eyes Chuck Todd? Sleepy Eyes Chuck Todd. Yeah. I think he called somebody else Sleepy, too. I forget. Uh, I think that, that sounds about right. There was, the, there was that Joe Donnelly, I believe. Sleepy Joe Donnelly. That when he was running right. for re-election. Yeah. He called Chuck Todd, I'm, I'm quoting here, he called him a sleeping son of a bitch at a rally. That's what he called Chuck Todd. So, right. so you know, we know where he could go with this. Sleepy Joe. So he says the media, fake news, is pushing Sleepy Joe hard. Funny, I'm only here because of Biden and Obama. They didn't do the job, and now you have Trump, who is getting it done big time. You have Trump. He always talks about himself in the third person. I love that. Yeah. Can I? I I, I want to play. I didn't get a chance to play this yesterday, but Donald Trump talking about Joe Biden, and now we're talking about. I would say the two front runners for the Democratic nomination, uh, Joe Biden at this point anyway, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, yeah, yeah. who are who are both older than your typical candidates. Donald Trump is older than your typical president, and he talked about the age thing. This is Donald Trump over the weekend. I just feel like a young man. I'm so young. I am a young, vibrant man. I look at Joe. I don't know about him. I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. You go out on the South Lawn, take the two of them out of the South Lawn, and ask them to do push-ups. Yeah. Donald Trump could not do one. No. He couldn't get down. If he got down, he couldn't get back up. In any test of He's like Grover Cleaver. Or vibrancy or anything like that, Joe Biden would beat Donald Trump. Yeah. It, literally anything. Seriously. I mean, you, you ask him to run around the White House South Lawn, right? Just do the- With th- a golf cart? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he'd do exactly. it. Exactly. Right. Um, so then he got into later about the uh, firefighters, right, uh, or unions in general, uh, his, he, Donald Trump tweeting out, I'll never get the support of dues crazy union leadership, those people who rip off their membership with ridiculously high dues, medical and other expenses while being paid a fortune. But the members, the members love Trump. They look at our record economy, tax and re- regulation cuts, um, military, etc. Win, he says. Then he goes after the firefighters. Quote, the dues-sucking firefighters leadership will always support Democrats, even though the membership wants me. Some things 
never change. But you know what? I think we're going to see some things change this year. I know we are. And it is true that a lot of union members, because they felt left behind, because they felt nobody was listening to them or paying attention to them, namely Hillary Clinton, they might have supported Bernie in the primary. Some of them, too many of them, went for Trump in the general election. If anybody can bring them back, uh, it's Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Democratic, any Democratic candidate, I would say, this year, given that they feel now they've been betrayed by Donald Trump because he didn't do anything for them except give the wealthiest of Americans uh, another tax cut. So all of the issues that they uh, were concerned about at the time, health care, minimum wage, income inequality, just basic keep being able to pay their bills without having to take a second job, all of those issues still remain as serious as ever before. Donald Trump has done nothing except make things worse. Well, he was not only attacking uh, firefighters yesterday and union members. Donald Trump also is not happy with Fox News. He's not happy because Andrew Napolitano, the legal advisor to Fox News, uh, he has become more and more of a critic of the president, willing to say when he thinks the president is saying things that are, uh, in fact, illegal, suggesting things that are ir- illegal or unconstitutional. He took another whack at Andrew Napolitano yesterday. Napolitano yesterday. Uh, Napolitano say, do, do you have that? Um, I, I'm just pulling up the Trump yeah, tweets because he, he he went on a whole thing, right? Like he obviously talked about the Joe Biden stuff. <laughs> uh, he talked about the union dues, uh, and I'm, I'm just trying to find the exact mm. tweet for what he said. But he he knocked Shep Smith. Uh, here he is. Um, thank you to the brilliant and highly respected attorney, Alan Dershowitz, for destroying the very dumb legal argument of Judge Andrew, uh, uh, excuse me, <laughs> quote, Judge Andrew oh. Napolitano. Ever since Andrew came to my office uh, to ask that I appoint him to the U.S. Supreme Court, oh. and, and I said no, he has been very hostile. Also asked for a pardon for his friend, a good pal of low ratings, Shep Smith. So he's knocking... <laughs> Andrew Napolitano and Shep Smith. Andrew Napolitano has been increasingly critical of Donald Trump, but I wouldn't say he's an adversary by any stretch. No, he's not an adversary. And by the way, you know, he's been on Fox for a long time. He he is a straight shooter. He's a good sure. league. I mean, he's a little too conservative yeah, for me. Yeah, he's a conservative judge. But he does know the law, and he respects the law. And unlike <clears throat> Rod Rosenstein or Bill Barr, he's not going to bend the law to serve Donald Trump. At any rate, uh, when Andrew Napolitano heard the president was out after him, uh, he takes the high road with a joke. And then the, this is the way you treat your friends. How do you treat your enemies? <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oy vey. <laughs> I think anybody that gets into bed with Trump and any, you know, it always has one of these oh boy. moments where he turns around and, and stabs him in the back. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, final point on this uh, on on uh, Donald Trump and the unions yesterday. I mentioned minimum wage, obviously one of the big issues. New York Times um, yesterday had an interesting story about how the New York how the minimum wage fares today. You know, the federal minimum wage is seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour. That was set ten years ago. Ten years ago, it hasn't budged since. 
But, and, and over that time, that means uh, that the minimum wage has lost 16% of its purchasing power. So those people who are getting 725 today, it's worth 16% less than what it was 10 years ago. But at the same time, many workers and employers are experiencing a minimum wage well above that $2,009, $7.25, because cities and states are moving up. So far, 29 states and the District of Columbia have enacted statewide minimum wage hourly wages higher than the federal one. 21 states and the District of Columbia. Washington State and Massachusetts, it's $12. Joe Biden yesterday talked about $15 minimum wage. But the real change, 21 states, has been at the city and county level. Uh, Notably, New York City already has now a $15 minimum wage, and SeaTac, Seattle, Tacoma, $16 minimum wage. So um, there's a bit of good news out there. Nothing that, of course, Congress can't get its act together. Donald Trump won't support it. But while we're waiting for Washington to respond after 10 years, cities, states, counties are moving up with a, a, a minimum wage approaching 15, 16 bucks, which is really good news. All right, a lot happening on the 2020 front. Beta O'Rourke in Yosemite National Park yesterday talking climate change. Jim Sir Gibbs. J- <laughs> Ginger Gibson, political correspondent for Reuters, joins us next. Give us a quick break. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. And here we go on Tuesday, April 30, the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital. And in studio, joining us in studio now, Ginger Gibson, political correspondent for Reuters, uh, with lots to talk about on the 2020 front. Hello, Ginger. Good morning. Good to see you. Glad to be here. Big week, huh? Yes, yes. There's a big surprise. Joe Biden running. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Um, <laughs> candidate number twenty, Joe Biden, jumps in the race after uh, months of sort of waiting on the sidelines, uh, weeks at least of us knowing he was going to eventually get in uh, before he finally made it official. So a lot of flirting there uh, for a while has now become become the real deal. Yeah, and we'll talk about how real that is uh, and the latest poll numbers on that. But first, want to check uh, through the last half hour, we've been bringing people up to date with some of the news of the day. Peter? Yes, indeed. Lots of comments on Twitter where we are tweeting at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, we have a question up there for you right now. Uh-oh, Do you think, This isn't a poll. This is a question. So we're actually asking for some input here. Do you think... Attorney General William Barr will show up to testify, or will Jerry Nadler have to use his subpoena power? Uh, A couple of comments on that. Karen says, I actually hope Nadler needs to and does use the subpoena. The administration needs to see that the House is serious and that the House has power. Uh, Robin says, no, Barr just won't show up. (laughs) Which... Maybe, maybe not. Uh, and Casey says Barr is not going to testify. It has no regard for a subpoena. We are now beyond upholding the law. <laughs> Do you have any questions on that topic or any topic at any time? Of course, you could find us on Twitter at BP Show. You know, um, they got to resolve this sooner or later. So the sooner yeah. this battle is drawn and decided, 
I think they're better, uh, and I think pretty clear Congress does have its uh, uh, its authorities under the law. So does yep. the executive branch, but the executive branch cannot prevent Congress from doing its job. Don't so. forget Eric Holder. Uh, held in contempt by the House for failing to show up and testify oh, before the Judiciary right. Committee. So it's not like this isn't without very recent precedent that yeah. an attorney yeah. general decided to ignore uh, the justice, the, the judiciary. Right. Uh, anyhow, thanks for your comments and thanks for your uh, participating in the poll. Um, so, so Ginger, we, we've judged everybody with um, on their launch, Bernie's launch, Kamala's launch. How was Joe's launch, to say? Joe's launch was a little rumbly. Uh, there was still sort of talk around uh, what he was going to do to answer some of the criticism that has come up, how he answered it. Uh, we can remember that uh, he was – here's the thing I think it's first important to say. By the time we get to the Iowa caucuses, we will have forgotten how everybody's launch went, mm-hmm. right? This is a, this Very is a good thing point. you and I yeah. sit here in the yeah. beltway and talk about, uh, and people who are really paying attention to remember for like 10 minutes, and then we all forget. Right. Uh, remember Warren's launch? We had lots of criticism for that, and we've all forgotten. But Biden had some problems in his out the gate. And here's the other important thing to remember. Um, if this is just a growing pains, getting started, uh, these things are very hard to do, and no one's perfect, uh, we'll move on. If this is indicative of broader organizational problems, then this is just item one and what could become a list of things that are problematic. I don't know which one it is, uh, but I suspect, at least on the, the logistics of launching a campaign, mostly we'll forget. Uh- at the same time, right? Uh, on the other side, he raised six point three million. Yes, impressive. Very impressive. Uh, more than anybody else. Uh, the Politico Morning Consult poll this morning. We always give the advisory about early polls being meaningless, but <laughs> we always talk about them. Uh, shows him with a little bounce up now fourteen points over Bernie. Um, it was uh, we got to hit thirty six to twenty two. Elizabeth Warren in third place, down at nine. I mean, that's so, a remarkable margin. It um, is, yeah. And even and, this early. And I think that the criticism of a, him that he wasn't <laughs> able to raise any money online was quickly dispelled. Um, he was able to 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 raise millions of dollars on the internet as a guy that people thought wasn't going to do it, um, and to just pull all those checks in. We know some of them were were big dollar checks, but pull mm-hmm. all those checks in and show uh, bigger fundraising numbers than Bernie Sanders and Better O'Rourke, which everyone thought was going to be the high water mark. So this is all remarkable for Biden in that way. Um, I think if you're looking at Biden's poll numbers, uh, we have to remember that some of it's name recognition, but that doesn't mean that it's empty. Um, I think that inside the Beltway, we have sort of started to equate this idea that Biden or Bernie are polling really well because everyone just knows their name as meaning that it's 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 empty. It's going it to collapse at any point. That's not the case. You have to do something to get people to change their minds. They're not just going to say, yeah, I'm voting for this guy and then all of them suddenly turn around and say they're not. Uh, how he handles himself on camera, at rallies, and at the debates is going to really be the determining factor of whether or not these people stay uh, with him and go from sort of soft support to really solid, or or they go from soft support to no support. But they're not just going to collapse on their own. So looking at things where they stand today, is it a Bernie-Joe race? It's too early to know that. I think that when you look at Biden and even Joe Bernie's numbers at this point, um, by the time we get to February of next year and we're looking at the Iowa caucuses, one of them could be at 45 
or they could both be at five. Um, I think that that's probably entirely possible. Um, and I think that there's still just a lot of campaign to run. Um, I, I mean, we're really at the stage of this cycle where Donald Trump hasn't come down the escalator yet. I mean, remember that. Um, and mm-hmm. not that I think another candidate's going to get in and disrupt the whole field. I think we've only probably got one more left. Um, I, I do think that just a lot can happen uh, in a campaign that can adjust those numbers to particularly how they run their campaigns and how they perform on the debate stage as candidates. Right. Um, Beto O'Rourke yesterday, um, the criticism of him has been, you know, a lot of charisma, running around very different kind of campaign and, and very attractive, but not much substance. Yesterday he came out with a pretty bold plan on climate change. It's criticized by some as not going far enough, but but yeah, you know, that he says that's going to be my priority. That's my issue, and he went to announce it in Yosemite National Park. By the way, I've been to Yosemite many times. It's not easy to get to, right? I mean, he for, to get to, to get there with a crowd of reporters, or I don't know how many reporters he got to follow on there was a tr- real trek. But. I've been to forty-four states, and I've never been to Yosemite. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a it's not on the campaign trail path normally. No, no. Um, so I look. The thing about this um, electorate and this um, group of candidates is that, first off, we know that voters overwhelmingly care more about beating Trump than they care about ideology, right? Um, more so than we look at the Republican electorate in 2012 when they were running against Barack Obama. At this point, their electorate was saying electability, 44% was their most important issue over issues. Uh, the Democratic electorate at this point is 60% are saying it, right? So a real uh, difference. Electability over issues. Over issues, right? Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean you can be without issues. Um, and I think that it's sort of like uh, the SAT. You got to take it. You got to pass it. Uh, it could determine what college you get in. But once you get into college, it doesn't matter anymore. Um, that's sort of what policy positions are like in this race. You got to have some. You got to roll them out. You got to prove you can talk about them. Um, there will be differences, slight differences on some. I think we've, as you mentioned, the criticism that O'Rourke didn't go far enough. Um, others will or say they went too far, probably. Medicare for all. There's Correct. variations on the theme, of course. But once you get in and you get it done, I think voters are going to say okay. Um, that's been the criticism of, of Pete Buttigieg is that he just doesn't even have a issue section on his website. And I'm starting to hear that uh, from voters who uh, are inclined to support him or concerned that he just hasn't done really the basic perfunctory levels of like filling out an issue section on his Web page. Right. Um, the first debate coming up. Um, we're almost into June, June 25, 26. We still have two months till the debate. <laughs> Oh, that's right. May. We're almost into May, not yeah. into June. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay. We're all ready for it. I know We're ready we are. for some action. Right. Um, the, I know the DNC is not going to decide until the last minute. They're going to give them as long as they can to meet the, the, meet the, the criteria for, getting to, for being on stage. If you had to guess now, so there are 20 candidates. Are we talking about, we're not 20 candidates on stage. Are we talking maybe a total of 12 what do you think? Right now, the New York Times is tracking. They think 16 candidates have qualified by the standards. Whoa, really? That the DNC put out. Yes, based on what has been disclosed. 16. 16 may have qualified. Um, so that's a lot of candidates. Now, the DNC has said they're going to break them into two nights. Yeah. Um, and so we're not going to see 
20 candidates on a single no, stage, no, but we right. could see yeah. eight or 10 candidates on a single stage, uh, which is a lot of candidates to be trying to sort through. I, see, s- I was counting on maybe 12. I thought there might be. We, we, we did that list yesterday, Peter, you know, the whoever, the, Andrew Messam, is this, what's Messam, it? Wayne Messam hasn't Wayne qualified. Messam. Uh, according to the New York Times, Marianne Williamson hasn't qualified. According to the New York Times, Eric Swalwell, uh, Seth Moulton, the two House members haven't yet got sixty-five thousand right, donors. Right. Um, but yes, there's there's a number. But, but Jay Inslee's not there yet. He's working hard at it. I know, but I he's not there correct. yet. John Hickenlooper, I doubt, is there. Right. I mean, these guys are from big states, so it helps when all you need is a dollar from an individual donor that will help them get there. Right. Mm-hmm. So they have large constituencies that voted them into office, which should help. There's also a, a, like a, a weird kind of blob of candidates that are all hard to distinguish, right? Like Eric Swalwell, Seth Moulton, Tim Ryan. I'd maybe put John Hickenlooper in that, even though Hickenlooper's got some experience running a state. You know, like they're all kind of like, uh, you know, late 30s, early 40s white guys. Is it the white guys from Congress. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Plus, yeah. plus Hickenlooper. Um, I think that um, they are having a hard time. To, I mean, look, and what's their case? I mean, that's that's the root of this, right? Like, what case Inslee is trying to distinguish himself from the field by being the climate change candidate, by being sort of a one-trick pony? And and if you're Eric Swalwell or Seth Moulton or Tim Ryan, uh, you're, you got to find some narrative to convince people that one of you is different from the other and therefore more qualified than the other to be president. They just don't have natural constituencies. And look, when we talk about the debates, I'm going to call this right now. I think before we get to the end of the road, uh, before we get to the end of the year, the top tier of candidates, the top maybe eight, are going to start to push back at this format where they split them and have half of the lower tier and half of the top tier. And that's because if you're Joe Biden and you're trying to take voters away from Bernie Sanders or you're Elizabeth Warren, you're trying to take voters away from Bernie or um, or Corey or whoever else you are, you need to be on the same stage as them. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. you can't distinguish yourself from someone who performed the night before. Um, and I think that we'll, we'll start to see some pushback from those top tier candidates to get away from this sort of blended debate stage. We know that uh, in the Democratic primaries, the African-American vote is really, really key. Uh, and particularly when we're talking South Carolina, not just, but South Carolina, Wisconsin as well as other states, but South Carolina. Um, and um, one would think that Kamala Harris, Cory Booker might have an edge on that. New York Times had an interesting piece yesterday that principally because he was there eight years with Barack Obama, that Joe Biden has really good, strong ties to and a lot of support in the African-American community. And his poll numbers. I mean, you lived in Delaware. You know, Delaware's... I lived Northern in Delaware. Delaware is a large minority Northern population, Delaware too. is a large minority population. Joe Biden was is quite popular with uh, yeah. the minority mm-hmm. vote in his home state. Um, and we look at our poll, uh, you know, the Reuters Ipsos poll last week, Joe Biden largely being carried by uh, African-American black, by non-white really? voters. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, that's really the core of his support with this early lead. Uh, polls much better than anyone else in the field among minority voters. Uh, black voters in South Carolina, Hispanic voters in the South, he does quite well with them as well. Um, and look, I think part of it, I've talked to some 
some supporters and some not supporters. And I think part of it is that um, they saw him as being willing uh, to stand behind Barack Obama. He was the white guy who didn't try to outshine the first black president, who didn't try to overrule the first black president, who didn't try to outdo him. Um, and that is seen as a testament to his character. Um, and I think that uh, is largely driving why Joe Biden does so well among African-American voters. You know, I, I just realized in talking about the candidates, and I, 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 I've I, done this before, and shame on me, I did not mention Julian Castro, you know, who I think is a very attractive candidate. Uh, and, and certainly he's the only Latino. I mean, he's got his lane, right, and a former um, mayor and former cabinet member. He does have a lane, and I think that we could see him have a moment um, as we've seen Mayor Pete sort of have a moment, I think Castro is capable of also sort of rising up and hitting that uh, what at this point when the polls would be a seven or eight percent number that would make right. it sort of stand out from the bottom of the pack. Uh, he is he's got a unique narrative. And look, I'm a Mexican-American woman from Texas. Uh, he and, and his brother and I have very similar uh, life stories, except uh, my mother <laughs> married someone with a who was, who was white. And so I don't uh, quite have the last name, but didn't grow up speaking Spanish. Uh, grew up in Texas as part of that uh, Tejano sort of Mexican second, third generation uh, community. Uh, it is a narrative that appeals uh, a lot to people, as not just second and third generation Mexican-Americans, but those who are first generation and first generation immigrants. He's the story of their grandchildren, right, that they can rise up and run for president. Um, I think that he is playing the long game. Uh, when you talk to his folks and people around him, uh, they didn't need to have an instant moment. They could they could wait a little bit and, and see what happens. Um, he is sending the longest fundraising text messages I've ever oh. seen. <laughs> but uh, that uh, may be I, because he needs to hit that 65,000 threshold. I got two of them from him yesterday. <laughs> A novel in my phone. <laughs> oh, exactly right. Um, you've also been, um, in addition to 2020, I know taking a look at um, Robert Mueller, a little critical look at Robert Mueller, which uh, people are saying, did he do the job and was he tough enough? It was uh, my colleague Nathan Lane and I had a piece uh, at the end of last week looking at this question. Uh, and I think that um, it's a delicate balance that um, critics of Mueller were trying to to, to strike. Uh, when, they, when you talk about the content of the report, what's inside Mueller's report, they think that it is uh, a real indictment of the president. Um, but they think that Mueller himself did not go far enough in, in, in levying that indictment. Uh, but who wants to criticize the guy who you're trying to use the report uh, and trying to keep credible to criticize the president? Not many people. Uh, but I did talk to some, uh, particularly in, in, in the left and in the, in well, the organization yeah. that said that, you know, they were disappointed that they, they did, he didn't go any farther. Well, there are at least two ways in which he stopped short. One was in agreeing accepting the fact that he was not going to be able to interview um, Donald Trump. And it, it is strange when you're conducting a criminal investigation of Donald Trump that you would... I, I remember where people were saying, there's no way he can complete his job. This was a year ago, right. without talking to Donald Trump, right. that he was going to have to sit down with him, just like Ken Starr eventually, his people sat down with Bill Clinton. And yet, at some point, Mueller accepted those written answers to questions without a one-on-one -on -one interview. And 30-some times in the written responses, Donald Trump says, I don't remember. And, and that's where you need a face-to-face -face so you can prod them a little bit. 
and and investigators have intuition to some extent, right? Like you yeah. can tell yeah. Yeah. Uh, what someone might be pulling one over you. Um, I think that uh, the the disappointment is that it, it feels like he didn't try. Um, that when you read the report, yeah. you don't yeah. get any indication that he really tried. Um, I think that that's going to be a really interesting question for any time someone gets to ask uh, Mueller questions. Um, how hard did he try? Did anyone stop him? Did it just become impossible? Uh, what was his thinking? Um, people want to know, uh, and, sure. and, and critics and supporters of him want to know and uh, then, why that was. And then the other end is, after identifying 10 different times in which he, the president, attempted to obstruct justice, that he did not charge him with that or even reach any conclusion. That's the other disappointment. They wanted to see a recommendation of some sort from someone like Robert Even if his hands were tied, um, and there's a difference as to how badly his hands were tied by the Justice Department rules, you can't indict a sitting president, he could have said, you know, I'd charge him if I could, <laughs> but he didn't go that look, far. I, I, that's the criticism, right, that Mueller didn't go yeah, that far. Although yeah. I talked to some folks who say Mueller did kind of go that far, um, that he didn't have to explicitly say it, that it could be implied uh, in what he wrote, and that um, Congress should look at it that way. Uh, now, again, now this and he does have that, that sentence debate, where he right? says, I can't, I can't do this, but Congress certainly can, right. basically. Punted to Congress. Uh, you know, I think that in in when someone writes history books, um, the chapter or the paragraph on Robert Mueller um, is going to be uh, still decided. I mm-hmm. don't know that we know how history is going to view him. Um, and, and in this moment, uh, we don't have the clarity to say that he delivered a report that um, made some type of resounding change in the in the way that we viewed the presidency or this president or that um, at the end of the day it was sort of a paper tiger and, and it didn't really accomplish much. I, I, I don't think any of us know which one that is yet. Uh, so you and I were both at the White House Correspondents' Dinner Saturday night and um, again I think Ron Chernow did an excellent job. Check out my column this morning on thehillthehill.com about um, Donald Trump I think did just the opposite of what he intended. He went out to kind of destroy the dinner. I think he saved the dinner, um, saved us maybe. But um, at one point, wandering around the ballroom in between courses, I saw Steny Hoyer. I went over to say hello to Steny Hoyer, his good friend. And Steny Hoyer was talking, the guy who was talking, I was surprised, turned around, was Larry Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> now one could ask what Larry Hogan was doing there, but I want to ask, Larry Hogan says he's been to 10 states so far. He's going to go to 16 more states. What do you think? I think Larry Hogan has a real potential to run. Um, I would not count him out as a potential challenger to the president. Um, And he's got probably three or four more months to do so. Um, He said he's in no hurry. In no hurry, and he doesn't need to be. Um, I I think that there is a finite and already well-defined pool of money from which he will be able to draw for a campaign. Um, there are a group of people who will give him money to run against the president, and there are a group Big. of people who will never give him money. Yeah. Right. So it's not like he needs to be out there working the donor uh, trail. Because but are there still, you know, with Sheldon Adelson and everybody else going in back of Trump, are there, is there still Republican money, big donors who never Trumpers still? Who would give to Larry Hogan? There will be money for Larry Hogan. There won't be 
Trump-level monies. There yeah. won't be Biden-level yeah. monies, right? But there will be money. Um, I think that there will be never Trumpers. There's also the potential that some Democrats could give him money. Um, they look at, mm. Um, yeah, at, the, at the Roberts campaign against <laughs> Bush as being something that really hurt Bush's reelect, having to deal with a primary. Um, now, I think that it could just as well help Trump by having him be in a primary. Who knows? Uh, but I, I don't think so. When you don't when money is not when, when scrapping for a change in the couch cushions isn't your problem for running for president, you can you can take a lot of time. Right. I wouldn't count him out yet. All right. Larry Hogan. And uh, in his second term as governor of Maryland. So he's got some standing. Right. But Ginger, every day, every time we talk, it just keeps getting more and more interesting. Thanks so much for coming in again. Thanks for having me. You can follow Ginger at Reuters, Reuters.com. And from NBC News, John Allen, national political reporter, joins us next year on The Bill Press Show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends. Don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Big infrastructure meeting at the White House today. Yes, indeed. Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi going in to the lion's den again. (laughs) Will it go any better than it did the last time? Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is The Bill Press Show on a Tuesday, April 30. Last day of April 2019, good to have you with us as we join you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., reaching out to you online, on the radio, and on television with all the news of the day. And we do so this hour with the help of our good friend from NBC News, national political reporter, John Allen. Hello, John. You're looking good. Good morning, Bill. Thank you. Yeah. You're looking right. good. Did you? okay. You're a handsome man, Bill. <laughs> I'm feeling a little left out, guys. Uh, Peter, you're, you're darn sexy back there in the booth. <laughs> Thank you. Guys throwing compliments around this morning. I love it. Yeah. This you is can great. tell he just got a new job. <laughs> an old job. I mean, an old job that's a new job. There you I, go. I see. Okay. Yeah, I saw my tweet this morning. People were. I'm sticking with NBC for the foreseeable future, which is very exciting. Okay, at least through 2020. Yes, like yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, it's oh, I've I've been in a lot of places, so it's very very nice and settling and encouraging and exciting for my family to be in the same place for a long time. And uh, I get to write my the book that I'm working on with my co-author Amy Parnes and not have to worry about uh, where I'm going to work while I'm doing that. Well, so that's, well that's congratulations. Nice. And I think since we've known you. Since we've known each other. I was other. just counting this up. Uh, how many jobs? <laughs> at least three. Right, Peter? Yeah, I, 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 was, I had three. Yeah. And not all at the same time. I mean, it's not necessarily <laughs> a function. Although sometimes I've had multiple jobs at once. 
It's but, not necessarily a function of the need well, to to make ends meet. Well, we're we're glad you found a little stability and security there. Uh, John Allen with us as a friend of Bill for the entire hour. We want to hear from you as well. Your comments on the news of the day on Twitter at BP Show. John and I will get into it with you. The news of the day, but first. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, so we talk a lot about the cashless society, right? More yeah. and more businesses yeah. are going cashless. They don't take cash. They just use uh, either Apple Pay or Google Pay, whatever you have on your phone, or just a card. Sweet Green was sort of leading this uh, revolution, right? Uh, really? They had said that they do not take cash at a lot of their different stores. They have stores in Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., New Jersey, New York City. Well, they have now backtracked. They have now said they will start taking cash. Some cashless businesses have been criticized. They said that it's classist and discriminatory about those who don't have or don't want an actual bank account. Uh, which I, yeah, I mean, I can see, right? But uh, they're saying that they're not going to push it. They're going to allow people to pay with cash. If you want to go get a salad at Sweet Green or whatever else, you can use your cash. You How can you have a place called Sweet Green that doesn't take <laughs> cash? Good point. Yeah. You can give me your Sweet Green. Um, yeah, right. You know, I, I so it still, resolved well. I, I must admit, I'm old school. I still think of credit card as something where you have to have a certain amount before you use your credit card, but that is no longer the case. I mean, I watch, particularly like at Starbucks or someplace, I mean, with three dollars, four dollars, they put on their credit card. Yeah, they'll still, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I think there are very few places now have a minimum level for use of credit card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's just how it goes now. Uh, Sunday night was a big, big episode for Game of Thrones. It was the long night. It was the Battle of Winterfell. It was an 82-minute long episode. Oh, my God. Uh, It turns out it was the most tweeted about scripted TV episode of all time. People were tweeting all throughout the episode, giving their thoughts on it. There was some praise. There was some criticism. But mostly there were a lot of, oh, crap moments that people... Really had Did Elizabeth to, uh, Warren weigh in? She's big Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, I fan. don't know actually. I don't know, uh, but a lot of people have tried to capture some of the magic that Game of Thrones has. That statistic, including Donald Trump, including Donald Trump. That's right. Game over. That statistic sounds like an ESPN thing thrown out on the bases like a nimkin poop in the third inning of road games or something like <laughs> most tweeted scripted show ever past 9 p.m. on HBO or whatever. This is the Bill Press Show. Rod Rosenstein, Deputy Attorney General, is out. And uh, a lot of people say, goodbye, good riddance. What do you say, everybody? Uh, His reputation suffered a little bit, for sure, after release of the Mueller report. Great to see you today on a Tuesday, April 30. The Bill Press Show, booming out to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, Joining you everywhere you are in this great land of ours and around the globe as well, uh, online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Looking at you on Free Speech TV nationwide and out in Chicago and the greater Chicago area. Hello, WCPT. And join me, all of you, in saying hello to John Allen, national political reporter for NBC News. Uh, just renewed his contract. 
got a new lease on life and a full-time job. John, congratulations. Good to see you. I saw you. I didn't have a chance to say hello. I saw you at a distance at the White House Correspondents' Dinner um, Saturday night. A different kind of dinner. Third year in a row, the president wasn't there. No comedian. Uh, a lot less. I didn't see one celebrity, to tell the truth, other than you. Um, <laughs> what'd you I mean, think? Bill, you're the one with your own show. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of the dinner? Uh, I enjoyed the dinner. Um, I thought that it got back to some of the sort of uh, basic principles of uh, honoring some of the uh, people who have done great journalism and honoring some of the younger folks who are uh, up and coming. So mm -hmm. that part was nice. Um, I like having a comedian. Uh, I am a huge fan of Ron Chernow's books, but I was trying to figure out how he was going to turn uh, Grant's tomb into a joke, or uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you right. know, or or bring on uh, Lin Manuel Miranda to sing Hamilton, or and you know, there was really no good. I mean, the Warburgs and globalism, like what was what was going to happen in this? Yeah, uh, yeah. at this dinner, and uh, so I, I personally felt like that part of the evening. Um, I mean, it was, it was good. It was just it made it like all the other dinners, in a way that the White House Correspondents' Dinner has always been a little different, which is to have had, you know, sort of a big name comedian. Right, right. Now I miss the comedian too. I love stand up comedy, right? And um, Barack Obama was, is a great stand up comic, and George Bush did a pretty good job. As I mean, W's comic. comedic timing is fantastic. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think that was an undervalued part of his. Yeah. presidency or sometimes even maybe when he was intentionally being funny people thought he was unintentionally <laughs> being funny right. he had a sort of self-awareness that was but I do funny. think that Chernow who is not let's just be honest the best speaker in the world right um, uh, his message was good I thought and it's a tough job yes it's a tough job uh, to stand up there in front of like 4,000 people or however many it is that are at plus the nation who are accustomed to watching the best public speakers in the world right Right. And I didn't think he did poorly no. at all. Uh, he just wasn't. No. It, it, yeah. And uh, um, uh, he wasn't Richard Pryor. No. But I was impressed also with the fact that the audience paid attention. He had the, he, and give him credit, he had the attention of the audience. You know, I was afraid people would be buzzing and talking throughout the speech. They were not. And I also was afraid that people would be getting up and walking out just because. It was late and it was kind of boring, but they did. They stayed. So I thought it was, as, as you say, lower key, but kind of getting back to the roots of what the dinner was all about and a successful evening. Absolutely right. a successful evening. And, and yeah. uh, you know, credit so, to the White House Correspondents Association and the President Olivia Knox for uh, putting on a good program and for working on some good sort of pace of play rules. Um, you know, they. Uh, they did some things that moved the the what yes. had been the slower parts along quickly, um, and uh, and that worked nicely. Yeah, I thought it did too. So Rod Rosenstein, he is out. Um, took some knocks after release of the Mueller report. Uh, what do you think his uh, standing is or reputation will be? Depends on whom you ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it depends on the day. I mean, you're talking about a president of the United States who has. Uh, trash Rod Rosenstein at uh, every available opportunity until uh, the Mueller report came out, at which point Rod Rosenstein's his best friend. Right. Um, you know, Ry Rosenstein was seen for a while as the person protecting Mueller, so the left said, you know, Rosenstein's a great guy. And then I know. Yeah. now the left is like apoplectic about Rosenstein because he's, you know, sucking up to the president. And 
Um, you know, I mean, literally, like if you look at his verbiage uh, when you when I say sucking up, I mean, r- regardless of whether he thinks the president is right about things or wrong about things, the the language that he uses about the president is. Um, I'm trying to think of the right, the nice word for it, but like it's, uh, it's laudatory. Yeah, it is. I was just looking. This I just have the New York Times in front of me. It doesn't have um, exact wording from his letter. I'm surprised it's in the Washington Post this morning. I mean, he goes, he praises Trump as a man of integrity and honesty and serving the country well. And we're basically we're lucky to have you. I mean, it goes really overboard, but. I mean, he's hoping to get a you know a Medal of Freedom or something at some point. I, I, I or Supreme Court appointment. Um, but you know, we forget in, in, with all the. And I was one of those who thought this guy appointed Robert Mueller, right? He's a straight shooter. The whole thing, and we forget that he is also the one who penned the letter at Donald Trump's request, saying you've got to fire Comey because he was mean to Hillary. Right. I mean, all these guys have been. Which was uh, a bogus, phony letter, and he knew it. I mean, all these guys have been uh, uh, in such a bad position at the Justice Department since the 2016 election. I mean, to be fair, Jim Comey's been in, in bad positions. Rod Rosenstein's been in bad positions. Jeff Sessions has been in bad positions. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, whether, oh, yeah. and I know there are a lot of listeners uh, and, and viewers of the show who, uh, who you know, are happy that, that to have, see Jeff Sessions in any position of discomfort, but I mean, he was put in put in bad positions at times. Um, you know, you go through the list. Mueller was in bad positions. Um, and some of them have responded to that better than others. But uh, ultimately what we've seen is uh, people's ambitions uh, in conflict with um, with their roles, with their jobs. Uh, we have seen conflicting pressures, conflicting pressures of their roles, right? Um, you know, do they answer to the president who appointed them? Do they answer to the American public uh, and the Constitution uh, that they took an oath to? Well, uh, and and where, where do you draw the line as to when you're being asked to put one over the other as, to, uh, as opposed to when they're in line with each other? But of course, what we c- have come to expect, and I think should, from any administration, Republican or Democrat, is that the job of attorney general is just not like any other cabinet job. I mean, it is considered an independent post serving the American people, not the president's personal attorney. Well, right now it's considered that way. I mean, historically, historically, it's right. But but in in our lifetime, it has been. Whether it was, you know, any of the attorney generals for Republican or Democratic president. But what gets me, what really to me, the straw that broke the camel's back for Rod Rosenstein when when it's reported, not been denied, that Trump was so upset with the appointment of Robert Mueller, he was going to fire Rosenstein. Rosenstein calls him, talks to him, and says, you can trust trust me. I'll, I'll be I'll be the one who's in charge of this investigation. And quote, unquote, I can land the plane. Now, to me, that was Rosenstein saying, you don't have to worry about anything, Mr. President. I got your back. What makes you think about the tarmac? Where Loretta Lynch met with Bill Clinton, the former which president, is, which is nothing compared to what Rosenstein did, and also I mean, something shook hands, and also something that shouldn't have happened. Exactly, I mean, exactly. Like, which I said it, at the time, but again, it, you have to say they're not parallel; they're not um, the same thing. And yet, the president has to have the ability to speak. He to was it. not president at the time, number right, one. Right. But I mean, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to have the position the president shouldn't be able to talk to a deputy attorney general broadly. I'm saying I can land this. Right. I mean, what does that mean? It means I got you're your fine. Back. Yeah, right. Of course, it means you're safe. Yeah. Yeah. 
But then again, who knows? Maybe Rosenstein's view of saying that to the president was, I'm going to keep him calm so Mueller can do his job. I mean, we don't know what's in Rod Rosenstein's mind. Um, and if you're Rod Rosenstein and you're trying to juggle all of these imperatives, one of the things that you want to do is try to prevent the president from making everything worse for the president, for the country, for the Justice Department, for Mueller. Uh, you know, so uh, trying to assuage the president is what you would do whether or not it's uh, whether or not you believed that he was going to be uh, cleared or exonerated by the Mueller report. The Mueller report is not good for President Trump if you read it. Absolutely. You're so right. So it's yeah. not like Rod Rosenstein got Robert Mueller to deliver something that makes President Trump look good. Right? Um, but I do think what he was able to do successfully, he and others, was keep the president from firing Mueller, which would have created a real constitutional crisis. Right. Uh, I want to move on, but also I have to say, Rosenstein. Not to become the Rosenstein Defense Society over uh, okay. here, but I do think that it's worth looking at from different perspectives. But but I, I then I keep looking at the things that, that make me not respect him, like co-authoring that four-page memo with Bill Barr, which really did not reflect what the report was all about, and then standing in back of Bill Barr when Bill Barr said that morning of the report was going to be released, that it shows no collusion, no obstruction, total exoneration of the president— B.S. It did not. And Rosenstein just stood there like a little Boy I mean, Scout. Did not reflect uh, about that four-page memo. I mean, that's no, that's no. charitable, Bill. You're oh, feeling oh, generous oh. this morning. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it did not reflect. No. It was deeply misleading. Absolutely. And Rosenstein was a co-author of it. So enough said. Rosenstein, at least from my point of view, goodbye, good riddance. I want to ask you about Joe Biden. Uh, big launch yesterday in Pittsburgh. He sort of decided... Pennsylvania is not only the keystone state. It's the keystone state. It's the keystone state of his campaign, right? Um, it's interesting. Uh, uh, what do you think the first couple of days, Biden? I think it's been good for him. Uh, I think the rollout's been been strong. Uh, mm -hmm. He's got like a three-and-a-half-minute video out this morning with it's basically uh, an audio of President Obama uh, praising him at the Medal of Freedom ceremony where Obama— Hmm. Uh, you know, it sounds like an endorsement video, even though uh, it obviously is not. And it yeah. raises the question of why the President Obama is not endorsing him again. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I think his rollout's been very strong. And I think his uh, his argument is one that the other Democratic candidates are going to have to figure out how to counter. His argument being uh, that he's the one to defeat Trump, if not the only one to defeat Trump, certainly the one that is the best uh, the best bet to be, to defeat Trump, and and you know the polling right now suggests that. I think if you talk to Democratic voters, the thing they care. I mean, it doesn't matter what their skin color is, what their uh, economics are, what their. I mean, you go across the Democratic Party, that's above, all they care about. Above above everything else, and so they don't care whether the electability. I mean, broadly, they don't care what the candidate looks like what state they're from, if they're a moderate or a liberal or whatever, or what's in their background, if they think the person is the one that can beat Donald Trump and that the others are not, which is basically what Biden is is mm -hmm. banking his campaign on right now, uh, then that candidate's got a real advantage. It doesn't matter even how old he is. Peter, we played this clip earlier with, of all people, to talk about the age uh, of, of being a factor for Joe Biden. It's Donald Trump himself. Here he was a day or so ago. 
I just feel like a young man. I'm so young. I am a young, vibrant man. I look at Joe. I don't know about him. I don't know. <laughs> Donald Trump's not that much younger than, than Joe Biden. You've seen the two of them. Do you have any doubt that Joe Biden has the vigor to, to be handle the job of president of the United States? Or Bernie Sanders, for that matter. I think there's a... A, a real difference right now between Joe Biden and both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, which is that I think both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are candidates who are in the moment and seem younger because they're in the moment. Um, and it remains to be seen whether Biden can do that, hmm. whether the where, whether a guy who has historically in his career sort of been a little behind the curve of where his party's going um, whether he can get out in front in a way, whether he can get modern politics. We saw his reaction to uh, the accusations against him was sort of a an old-school reaction to it. He sent out mm -hmm. a spokesman first, and then it took yeah. several days to get in front of a camera. All of that felt kind of older. All of that felt, and I don't mean age-wise, I meant it felt, felt very you. 20th right. century. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are very 21st century politicians. We've seen Bernie Sanders adapt in the 2020 campaign um, from his 2016 campaign in a lot of ways. His rhetoric is different. Uh, the way that he's presenting himself, his narrative, uh, talking about himself and personal qualities in a way that he's always been uncomfortable with before. Yeah, this a... is somebody who's really learned mm -hmm. over the course of the years. Mm -hmm. We see Donald Trump out there on social media all the time and sort of a master of focusing everyone's attention. These are 21st century candidates, and they seem younger as a result of it. Or their age is less of a, a prominent thing. With Biden, he's he's going to have to show that I think, unless his entire uh, his entire mo is the return to normalcy, and part of that is it's okay to kind of go back to being a 20th century candidate. Yeah, right. There's that aspect of it also, and then there's the physical vigor of it. I guess which is what I was focusing on. I mean, you know, I've been around Donald Trump at the White House. I mean, I. And I've been around Joe Biden a lot in my life. No doubt in my mind that Joe Biden physically is probably in better shape than Donald Trump. I mean, Joe Biden's in great shape. I mean, or at least he always has been. I mean, he's somebody who's in good, who has good stamina, and he's somebody. Look, he can outlast anybody else in a talkathon. I mean, <laughs> uh, the one senator that, that test, boom. The one senator that, uh, if you were talking to him in a hallway uh, as a congressional reporter, you would try to end the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was it? Somebody saw when Joe when Joe Biden was giving a speech in the Senate, and and Barack Obama passed a note to somebody that said, "Shoot me now." Yeah, <laughs> because it was, the speech was going on and on. Um, the we saw another tragic case of um, place of worship uh, attacked uh, over the weekend uh, out in Poway, California, uh, on top of Pittsburgh, on top of what happened in New Zealand. Uh, and others. Um, and it's either the Post or the New York Times this morning um, has an article about this whole phenomenon of white nationalism that's going to be a central issue in the 2020 campaign, particularly in the way Donald Trump has or has not handled it. Do you see it? Um, I did not. I didn't see the piece on it. I mean, I've certainly Do followed white nationalism yeah. uh, as a as a political But is, is, it, is it going to be an issue, do you think? And, and of uh, course... Joe Biden started his campaign talking about Charlottesville. And Biden started his campaign talking about Charlottesville. I think that white nationalism mm -hmm. is something that is both uh, large enough 
uh, both in the in the United States and and really across the world. Um, in it's both big enough that it can't be ignored, and yet it is um, something that a, a large enough percentage of people find abhorrent uh, that um, I'm not sure being against it is the is a big enough thing um, to win a presidential race on. Um, to to wit, uh, Hillary Clinton spent a lot of time talking about the rise of white nationalism in 2016 mm-hmm. um, and framed that as a big piece of her uh, campaign and it certainly excited the Democratic base uh, at that time in her campaign when she started talking about it um, and saying, you know, this is not who the Republican Party of Colin Powell and John McCain and, and, and whatever are. Right. Uh, this is a, a group of, of people who really aren't um, those folks and she was trying to split up the Republican Party and I think that was smart politically um, but I'm not sure that it, you know, I'm not sure that it ultimately worked. I, I think that there are people, I think a lot of people are voting on, on different issues. I think a lot of people are, a lot of people who will vote for the president or who will vote for Republicans in Congress are uh, willing to say, um, yes, I too am against white nationalism, and uh, but I also like the president's policies on X, Y, and Z, including some of the ones maybe that some of the white nationalists like, and they're and the the voter is like, I'm not a nationalist, but I also want you know whatever X policy. Right. So that's one one issue that 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 some people are talking about at any rate. Um, the other is, and there's an interesting piece by uh, a member of Congress, young member of Congress, one of the freshmen in the. Uh, uh, again, it's in the post this morning, uh, affirming, I forget her name now, but affirming, I am a proud capitalist. And this this kind of um, debate whether the Democratic Party is going too far left to almost socialism or is the Democratic Party going to embrace capitalism? The only one self-identified Democratic socialist is Bernie Sanders. Right. But, um, um, at the pre- on the on the presidential stage. on the presidential level, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, Elizabeth Warren is very strong on being a capitalist, and if you look at her program, she's a capitalist. <laughs> she's a capitalist who believes in regulated markets. Yeah, uh, right. which is basically everyone in the United States. I mean, I will talk to some people who will say, "I'm for free markets and no regulation," and I'm like, "Oh, so you you know you want your drinking water poisoned?" They're like, "Well, no, of course." I'm like, "Oh, okay." You know, like th- you know, there are people who will say, "I don't believe in regulation." And they don't really mean that they don't believe in any regulation, whether it's capital formation regulations or FDA regulations or whatever set of regulations. My FDA example is bad for capital markets. But my point being that almost everybody in this country, or at least the broad majority of people in this country, uh, both believe in some level of capitalism and also believe in like big social insurance programs. Um, which are not necessarily socialism, or, or some but, restraints on capitalism, even if even if it's like no child yes, labor yes, or something, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so the, I, so I was up in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, that on their first speech, great group of people, and um, one of them mentioned the phrase um, "progressive capitalist," yeah, which which works for me. I mean, I think that's what that, what that means, not an unfettered capitalism, right? Right. I mean, yeah. the, if you don't have capital, like. It sort of gets back to the idea of freedom, but like if you don't have a capitalist system at all, uh, the uh, the ability to grow the economy is greatly hampered, uh, and you can't get a lot of the things done that you would like to do in terms of the social insurance programs 
Yeah. Right? Um, you need to you need to have some some money engine, basically, um, in order to provide all the services that you would want to provide to a government if you're on the left. So it makes sense to have, say, a mixed hybrid kind of system like the United States has had for the last, you know, increasingly for the last 250 years or whatever. Uh, 2020, um, Joe Biden is the number 20 to jump in. Out of the 20, how many do you think are serious? Um, I think they're all serious, but they're serious about different things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean serious in the sense that have any possibility of going the whole, I'm the watching, whole way. Not just to number one, but let's say the top three, four, five. I'm watching a shrinking number of them closely. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can't bounce sort of back into it. Like, we haven't had a debate yet. Uh, mm-hmm. l- let's watch the debates. That yeah. can have an effect on things. Yep. Um, that can have a huge effect I on I think things. the first debate's going to have a big effect because some people are not going to make it. Some people will fall flat on their faces. Some people are not going to make it. They're out. Then some people will fall flat on their face. They won't use their time well or whatever, right? And they'll be out, right? And some people will be exposed in, in you know, in weird ways. I mean, you know, Tulsi Gabbard got on the debate stage. A uh, congresswoman from, from Hawaii got to her 65,000. Did she? Yeah. yeah she got to okay. her 65,000. Peter, we forgot Tulsi Gabbard. Totally the, forgot Tulsi. The forgot Daily Tulsi. Stormer. Was running house ads. The Daily Stormer, the neo-Nazi website, mm-hmm. was running house. Speaking of white nationalism, house ads encouraging its readers to give a dollar to Tulsi Gabbard so Why? she could get on the Democratic debate stage. Why? Because they like her. Why? It's the lack of interventions. Like she basically said, she's not going to intervene in any wars or any sort of combat outside of america it's it's i mean i know this is not necessarily her intention but it's being Mm -hmm. perceived as america first and america only when she got to sixty five thousand, daily stormer took credit for putting her over the top uh that's a bad sign i think if you're running just for what it's worth yeah which also means she probably has a list of one dollar donors like a pretty good list of well, white she, nationalists. Yes, there. yeah, yeah. Give that to the FBI. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I but know. I said there's a there's a dilemma. Okay, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah. So the point is that there, that even somebody that wacky could get up on the debate stage, but but that doesn't mean she'll have legs for the rest of the campaign. Um. Right. It doesn't mean she'll have legs for the rest of the campaign, but also, you know. Other people will shift and, and move and yeah. and rise and fall. So I would say, uh, you know, in a, in a momentary plug, you know, watch the first debate on NBC. <laughs> um, well, that's very good because you're free to say that because that's the only place you will be able to watch the first debate. Yeah. yeah. It's the best place uh. <laughs> to watch the debate and the only place to watch the debate. Um, but I also think that uh, in terms of the broader question of like how many, the, the original question – I mean, you got to look at Biden. You got to look at Sanders, um, and they're going to continue to compete for a long time. You got to look at Harris. She's got the money built up. Right. Uh, she's um, she's got the sort of infrastructure building in a lot of different places at once. I think you got to keep watching her, even if she doesn't do well in, in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, you probably got to keep an eye on Mayor Pete for a little while. I think Elizabeth Warren, uh, after the impeachment call, is somebody you got to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you start to fall off from there. Like, 
you know, O'Rourke and Booker and the, I, like kind of the senators lane, the second mm-hmm. tier senators mm-hmm. lane. You keep an eye on maybe somebody. Bobichar, Gillibrand, Booker, and I, Beto. Yeah, so Beto's not a senator, former rep, whatever. Yeah, but, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, and and, and then, just then you got a third tier below, maybe Julian Castro in that level too. Maybe I mean, look, we haven't seen that, any information on where Latino voters are, right? None, um, and that doesn't mean Julian Castro is going to win Latino voters, but we haven't seen any indication really yet. And the same thing with African American voters, like there's not there. Well, let's put it this way: there's no clear difference between subsets of voters uh, within the Democratic primary process right now, uh, based on race or ethnicity. So maybe that means they all care about the same thing, and we will never see a breakout. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, which is will, will have been different than um, than what we saw in the last couple of primary elections, uh, or maybe it means that it's simply not something that has really uh, settled yet, right? Like, or or I don't know what the right percolated, or mm-hmm. I'm using different words that. But what I mean to say is uh, that folks haven't figured out what they want to do yet. Um, but we haven't seen those numbers yet, and I think everyone forgets that Nevada comes before South Carolina uh, in the primary calendar, primary caucus calendar. Nevada is um, uh, hugely influenced by Hispanic votes, uh, and nobody's paying attention to that right now. Yeah, no, you're right. We talk about South Carolina. Uh, so it's Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Right. Nevada's right. a week before uh, before South Carolina. Before South Carolina. John Allen with us here is a friend of Bill the entire hour we're going to take a break and welcome back, welcome back, and welcome to the table. Elena Plot, White House of the Atlantic, coming up next here on the Bill Press Show. Give us a quick break and we'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Tuesday, April 30. Here we are, the Bill Press Show. Thanks so much for being with us as we join you online, on the radio, and on television all across this great country of ours. John Allen from NBC News joins us. Here in studio as a friend of Bill for the entire hour, and John, you and I now welcome a good friend of the program, good friend of ours from the Atlantic, covers the White House for the Atlantic, Elena Plot. Hello, Elena. Hey nice guys. to see you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm surprised you have time today because uh, you know you got the big infrastructure, infrastructure meeting. Day. I know. Infrastructure day, yeah. infrastructure week. Right. Well, it's my favorite time of the year, you know, so I figured what better way to start it. Than <laughs> the good news is if it's the, your favorite time of year, it never ends. That's oh, right. I know. I know. That's it's why like... I hope Trump is president forever. <laughs> so and who's going to be at this meeting? You Let's... may get your wish. Uh, he's mused <laughs> about it. <laughs> yes. Who's going to be there at the meeting? It'll be Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and a few committee chairs. But we don't know yet if it's going to be another, you know, kind of rambling on camera, well, Oval Office. Yeah, that's my next question, mm-hmm. right? So no Republicans, right? This is Democratic Correct. leadership and the president and his people Correct. to talk infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? Um, we remember the last meeting with Schumer <laughs> and Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi. So are the cameras going to roll through the entire meeting? You know, we really don't know. It's ostensibly closed press, but that last meeting was ostensibly closed press. And at the last moment, Trump decided that he wanted to make it, um, you know, a primetime cable special. So that, that could very well happen today. Did he learn his lesson? It didn't work out that well for him last time. Well, I mean, there's two ways to look at that. I don't know if I agree with that. I'll just oh, okay. That, yeah. Go ahead. One is that he would potentially, well, I guess three ways. One is Elena's way, which is that he actually won all that. 
and I'll, you should explain that. And then two, I'm not. Uh, and then two is that he learned a lesson that he shouldn't have open press events. And then three is that he learned a lesson that he should do a better job at his open mm-hmm. press events, right? So um, I think as long as there are rambling open press events with uh, the possibility of that with Trump and Schumer and Pelosi, there will be prayer in the press box. That, prayer that those things will happen that, again will and again around. and again. <laughs> Uh, after he sort of insulted Nancy and she fired back at him, why do you think this worked out well, well for him? I have a few different interpretations. The first is that when it came to all the events that happened later, which is, of course, the shutdown and how poorly that reflected on Trump, I really think that was the meeting when he understood that Nancy Pelosi was a force to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. I don't think he truly understood the extent to which he had to respect her as a leader. I think you're then. right. But um Where I think he won was just with base voters. And this is based on my reporting in the aftermath, talking to even administration officials who had said to me they were so frustrated by the lack of progress on a wall that even though we haven't necessarily seen that progress, they cite that meeting as a time where they seemed really happy that the president was willing to fight when he said, I will shut down the government for border security. That really resonated with a lot of his voters. So I think in terms of the people who were at risk maybe for slipping away because they were frustrated that nothing had happened with border security, even though nothing still has happened, that meeting rhetorically was useful to them. The problem for the president, if, if, if I can play devil's advocate here, is, and I agree with you that, I mean, I think he, was, he boxed himself into a place on this policy where he had no choice but to go in the direction that he's gone to satisfy a base mm-hmm. that was r- possibly ready to walk away from him on the fact that he had not uh, gotten done. Not his whole base, but the piece that cared most about Definitely. border security and the wall was, and only some of that base. But they were so frustrated, as you say. He boxed himself in a position where he had no options available other than to shut down the government, to and hold it shut down, for, declare a national emergency, go to all of these extraordinary measures. And when you get yourself in a position like that and you have no options, um, you know, that's bad news as a politician. Usually as a politician, you want to leave yourself um, some some exit room. You want to leave yourself some some choices, escape mm-hmm. hatches. Uh, and, and so I think that he at least would have liked to have had some maneuverability and he really left himself with none. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, just, I have to raise this question because I peep, keep hearing, not just from you, but everybody, that this is... He made his base very happy, right? There's no doubt. I mean, Donald Trump at rally last Saturday night. Donald Trump's base is solid. It's with mm-hmm. him. But has he ever moved beyond his base? And is his base good enough? I mean, why do we keep giving him credit for satisfying his base? You know, his campaign really is basing their strategy on if they can get every base voter to turn out, they'll be fine. And I've talked to Republican strategists about that. At the moment, they seem to, and especially in the aftermath of the Mueller report, they feel, at least based on my reporting, talking to campaign advisors, they feel that they can really harness the Mueller findings to their benefit ahead of 2020. Is his base enough to get reelected? This is the theory of modern politics that failed for Hillary Clinton, which is uh, that you can deepen your base rather than expanding it. Mm. expanding mm. from it, right? Mm-hmm. So you find mm-hmm. the people who agree with you who are not voting, and you go get them and you get them to turn out, as opposed to trying to expand from your base 
to the set of people who are already voting and convince them to right. vote for you. Right. And the idea is that it is more efficient to find the people who agree with you and get them to vote than it is to uh, to convince people who already vote that you're the right person. Uh, and and generally speaking, broadly speaking, it's true. But the question is, what is the uh, what is the marginal value or marginal uh, effort that you have to make uh, to drill down to the point where you're getting to people who never vote to get them to come out and vote for you? Because to, to get the first you know, few voters that don't vote to come out and vote for you is yeah. pretty easy. To get the first million <laughs> is harder, 10 million is harder, yeah. 20 million is harder. Um, they may not have a choice. The alienation of everybody outside of Donald Trump's base has been so severe and and by the way clinton did this a lot too right she focused so hard on her base that she alienated so many people outside of it she didn't have a lot of choice at the end her people said we didn't want to go to some of these states in the upper midwest because we felt like when she showed up we were more likely to bring out people against her than we were people for her Mm -hmm. and we're seeing trump do the same thing so this is obviously what these data-driven campaigns are concluding is the best way to go and we'll see what how it works for Trump, but I, I think it's one of the reasons that the Clinton campaign ultimately failed is that they were unable to reach out beyond her base. Well, also, right. I mean, take Texas. I think Texas in 2018 was a perfect example. So many districts that should have been easy, easy gets for Donald Trump, and yet you had so many moderate Republicans who have felt alienated by this president, who may have even voted for him in 2016, who were able to swing a lot of these places blue. And it was not just crossover votes. You had record liberal turnout. Of course, Ted Cruz's campaign was basing turnout models on something way lower than what ended up happening. So not only is he not focusing on trying to expand his base, you're going to have, I think, uh, liberals and other Democrats turn out probably in much higher numbers than they did in 2016. Right. Uh, so I want to get to the news. Part of the news of the day, today is that um, the president has filed another lawsuit. Mm-hmm. He filed one last week, kind of both directed, but both with the same purpose. Last week, the lawsuit was filed against the chair of the House Oversight Committee, Elijah Cummings, and this accounting firm, Marzos USA, something like that, um, saying to, to block release of some financial records. Yesterday, the president's attorneys filed a second lawsuit against um, Capital One Bank and Deutsche Bank to prevent their responding to subpoenas mm-hmm. from Congress for releasing financial records. So is this an attempt to just block any House, part of an attempt to block any House investigations? Yeah, it really is that simple because the thing is, once they can get pretty much every request tied up in litigation, it could be until, I don't know, 2021 until we have them resolved. So this is a very simple way to slow walk every single request. Right. So, John, um, the idea is maybe just as he did in his business life, right? Got a little conflict. You file a lawsuit, ties Mm -hmm. it up in the courts for a couple of years, and by then we're past 2020. I mean, everything the president does is based on his <laughs> his private business private. strategy. Almost everything is, is based that way. I mean, you sort of – I was thinking about this the other day, that if you watch his strategy with international leaders, with uh, democratic norms, with, um, with regard to laws that exist, his view is if you knock something down, Obamacare, for instance, uh, that there will be a tremendous pressure to build it back up. 
It's sort of like real estate in Manhattan. If you knock a building down, everybody's going to want you to build it back, something back up in its place. They don't want the eyesore or whatever. There's a lot of uh, stakeholders interested in that. That's not how things work in Washington, and it's not necessarily how like international alliances work or trade deals work. You knock it down, they don't mm-hmm. necessarily get built back up in their in their shadow. Um, as far as the congressional response goes, uh, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, this is the president asserting the dominance of the executive branch over the legislative totally. branch without any question. Without you know, and these are conceived of as co-equal branches, and the Supreme Court has ruled in the past. Uh, pretty unambiguously that Congress has a right to oversee uh, the administration, and part of that is uh, to get records and to get witness testimony. Um, And the president's like, well, you're going to have to decide again. I'm going to tie it back up in court. And his use of the courts is also, in a way, its own sort of establishment of dominance of the executive over over the judiciary. So uh, when people talk about the testing of the limits of the power of the presidency, um, we are watching it. Yeah. So th- this is, I mean, it, I think the classic, we've been dealing with this since the founders founders of the separation of powers, mm-hmm. right? And as you point out, John, it's been tested before in the courts, and usually the courts have ruled that you do have two equal branches of government. The legislative, legislative branch has its job. But I think the Trump seems to be saying no, right? We, we, we can decide where they can go and where they mm-hmm. can't go. I had an interview with Mick Mulvaney on the record in uh-huh. his office um, last week. And what he said to me is Congress is not a law enforcement agency. And they're ready to assert the separation of powers with the perspective that Congress just does not have the right to do that to them, to kind of subpoena them into um, extinction. I, I guess that's the way you put it. Big Bobinny's wrong about that. Well, that and then Congress he, oversees the entire and then law he, enforcement. He, you know what yeah. was interesting? Yeah. He and I don't know. And they have the right to jail people for contempt <laughs> know, of Congress. I know. And you know what he also said? He said, "Listen, if they want to impeach the president, fine by me. Go ahead and do it. But don't just keep trying to investigate something because you feel that Mueller didn't give you the answers that." you wanted, which is, of course, not what Democrats are doing. But it was the first time I had heard a senior Trump official say, just go ahead and do it. That's what they want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the president, right. I've talked to people who right. are aides to the pre- or advisors to the president or have been advisors to the president who believe that he is baiting Congress to impeach him because he believes you that know, that's a good political mm-hmm. model no, for him. You know, I'm glad you said that because I, had the, I came to the exact same conclusion that I think part of the strategy of the lawsuits is to piss off the committee chairs, right, frustrate them so mm-hmm. badly, and the Democrats on those committees so badly that they're just going to say, screw it, right? Yeah. If, if, we, if they won't let us do our oversight, we'll start impeachment hearings. Here's the, so but Then Trump will probably sue them for that, too. But I think he is baiting them to go. They want them, Trump White House wants them to start impeachment And I think hearings. it's a relatively new thing. Again, Mulvaney told me this on the record. I, I had never yeah, been able I, to get that on the record. I never heard of any other administration yeah. person do that. Did you ask Mulvaney why you were there about why he won't let people talk about the risk of what the Russians were up to in 2020? So he said that that's completely false, that he has had conversations with the president about that, that they do indeed take it really seriously, that they've taken steps to make sure Russian interference doesn't happen again, that they've offered resources to all 50 states, 
saying, we're here to support you with whatever infrastructure you need to prevent this from happening. He said the New York Times story about Kirsten Nielsen um, trying to bring this up and being blocked was completely inaccurate. But New York Times reporting that she tried to bring, wanted to bring it up and, right. and Mulvaney counseled her not to do so because Donald Trump doesn't like to talk about that. But if the president did nothing wrong and the president won his election and the Russians interfered in the election, why would the president want to stop the Russians from interfering again? Well, what, and why would anybody think that that would be the right course? Well, what Mulvaney told me is he said it didn't change a single vote. He said, let me make clear, it did not influence a single vote. But Mulvaney did, says that? He did. He said yeah. that on the record. It's impressive that he knows what all 130 million I know, Americans I know. were thinking. He said it didn't influence a statement like that based he, on what evidence. But right. he um, you know, was unambiguous that he knew it had happened and that He's had conversations with the president about it. And I also asked him, you know, Trump is obviously very excited about the Mueller report. Does that mean he also agrees with the finding that Russia did indeed hack the Democratic National Committee, which he's been unwilling to say happened? Mm -hmm. And he's, Mulvaney said, I don't know. I haven't asked him about it. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. But I mean, sort of back to my original point, like what if you believe that you did nothing wrong and you're the president and you believe that there was uh, Russian interference and you did nothing wrong, and it resulted in an election win, like, why wouldn't you encourage the Russians to interfere again so that you could win again without their help? Because and there was John, nothing it wrong didn't with it. swing yeah. a single um, vote, as Mulvaney said. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, well, even if the, it didn't, why not, you know, hope that well, it helps this time? But remember, Vladimir Putin told the president that he didn't do it, and so... He has no reason not to believe Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. That's where we stand as far as Donald exactly. Trump is. Exactly, and that's why I wanted to ask Mulvaney, you know, where does Trump stand now? If he agrees with the Mueller findings that there was um, no collusion, um, that he couldn't indict him on obstruction, does that mean he also agrees that Putin did indeed have his cronies hacked? Which is outlined in great detail exactly. in the Mueller report. And Mulvaney just kind of ducked the question. But all this is kabuki you until Mueller testifies. Yes, yeah. Or doesn't testify, but presumably Mueller testifies. All of it's meaningless until Mueller explains his report. Mm -hmm. What do you mean of, it's meaningless? I mean the the stuff about the subpoenas and all that. Oh, like, I see what you're saying. It, yeah, like that's the key. The question for Mueller is: Were you unable to establish that there was a conspiracy because of the obstruction of justice, or do you believe that that had a bear? The obstruction of justice had a bearing on your inability to to establish uh, conspiracy. Do you believe that the obstruction of justice charges are impeachable offenses and they were left to Congress to sort that mm -hmm. out rather than, you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's like three or four like sort of primary questions for Mueller that like I think Congress has to ask and and things go from there. But in terms of all of the other subpoenas and things like those would flow from what you find out from Mueller if you're Congress. Elaine, uh, a couple of other things that are going on um, at, at the White House. The there's. We know that Herman Cain dropped out mm -hmm. uh, from the Federal Reserve. There were several Republican senators who said they would not vote for him. Uh, now we've got dangling Stephen, Stephen Moore. Moore. Uh, he insists the president's behind him. He's not giving up um, any comments he made about women. First, he just said they were just jokes. He went farther on Sunday by apologizing for those columns that they wrote. Yesterday, Larry Kudlow, chief economic advisor, was asked again about um, where the administration stands 
Well, first, let's let's start. Sarah Huckabee Sanders first quoted was asked about it. Are you looking into these comments? Um, and Sarah, I didn't. Uh, I I just have Larry Kudlow talk. I'm about sorry. It. I'm sorry. But yeah. Sarah, you're right. She did say Sarah that. Sarah she said, said that we're, we're looking, looking into it, it yeah. which exactly. was the first time mm-hmm. the White House has said ever mm-hmm. ever that this could be an issue. Then Larry Kudlow, but still comes back with the uh, good seal, whatever, good housekeeping seal of approval. We're still behind him, and he's going through the process of vetting, and we'll see what happens through that process, and then hopefully it'll go up to Senate Banking Committee. No, no change in, in our position. Not exactly a ringing endorsement, but what's going on there? Senate Republicans are, by the day, just more and more telling reporters, I don't feel great about this. I mean, Richard Shelby, even, um, of Alabama, said, you know, my wife is a professor. I've never bought into this idea that more outlined in his columns that, you know, women should be at home, men should be the breadwinner and whatnot. So I think just at a personal, visceral level, you're seeing a lot of Republicans say this is not the hill that we want to die on. Yeah. John? Uh, Stephen so, Moore doesn't want women selling beer at men's basketball games. So, first, <laughs> we're announcing. Yeah. So, first of all, Elena, I think that was a wonderful plug for Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer's book, "The Hill to Die On." Uh, <laughs> you, just, oh. you just made there. That was uh, that was. It well is a done. good title. I I don't have the book yet, but I love the title. Um, yeah. I, it's a good yeah, book. I, I think Stephen Moore's ideas on uh, on. The roles of spouses and gender roles are, I think they were antiquated for the 19th century or the 18th century or the 15th century. Um, And he should be apologizing uh, because anybody who's ever said anything like that ought to apologize for it. Um, in and addition he to it, he it, said it on multiple occasions, but in I mean, a, there were multiple columns. In addition to that, right, and columns, things that he wrote, columns. he didn't I, just like. Yeah, it wasn't sitting. Not that it would excuse it, but he wasn't sitting around with a bunch of buddies watching beer, going right. like, "Ah, wouldn't it be funny if like yeah, they weren't allowed right. to announce?" No. Not no. that that would be okay, but like right. it's a little different yes. than like publishing a column. And then in addition to that, uh, his views on the economy are singularly poorly uninf- poorly formed and informed. Um, I mean, he's been basically, uh, you know, emperor has no clothes defrocked on uh, well, national television repeatedly by people who actually know something about the economy. So I, I think, I mean, look, the the Trump administration has shown, if nothing else, the Trump White House has shown, if nothing else, uh, that they enjoy sticking their thumb in the eye of anybody who thinks that expertise is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's some thought that uh, sticking somebody in a job who... Um, is both unqualified and seen as misogynistic is, uh, you know, a victory. Um, but I don't think But I still think that it's, mm-hmm. yeah, for that reason that Elena yeah. suggests, like, they can find somebody else exactly that fits this bill without causing this much pain. I also think that that th- thought is very widely held on Capitol Hill. Oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Even though some of them have been maybe not as outspoken as they were against Herman yeah. Cain. But they don't have to be outspoken. It looks to me like Stephen Moore's time is uh, it's, it's a, not long before the president says that yeah. Stephen Moore has asked that his name be withdrawn. I think you're probably right, Bill. And I'll also note that the last time Sarah Huckabee Sanders said that the administration was looking into mm-hmm. problems with one of their either um, appointees or um, nominations was um, 
what what's his name? God, I can't even remember our EPA administrator, Scott, Scott Pruitt. Pruitt. Oh yeah, Scott Pruitt. <laughs> it's right. not like no, I covered it. It's anything other than the president has full confidence exactly. in XYZ. Yeah. And even but then, even it's then bad. no. Even then, <laughs> you can't even trust full confidence yeah, anymore. No, no, no. <laughs> Just about a minute left, but you uh the pre- president last week went to the NRA convention, which was mm-hmm. riven with controversy. They ended up this big fight between Ali North and and um, Wayne LaPierre. But for Donald Trump, this is, as you point out, sort of like his happy home, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, They're as, his peeps. As I wrote in a piece about this speech on Friday, outside of Trump's own rallies, there are very few institutional settings where he is going to get as warm of a welcome as he did with the NRA. And it's just amazing to see the mood shift that occurs and how much happier the tweets get when he's in a setting like that. <laughs> Uh, and they still have some power. I think diminished power, but... Well, I think the president understands that uh, that cutting back on gun rights is bad for him with his base. And whether <laughs> right. it's the NRA, which is like a, you know, a high-profile platform, or more mm-hmm. broadly gun owners, uh, he's, he's in a good place if he's supporting gun rights. All right. All right. Now, all eyes on infrastructure and the big infrastructure meeting today. I hope they let the cameras roll. It'll be fun to watch that yes, little interaction, sure. um, particularly with those, some of those other committee people there as well. Mm-hmm. Elena, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming in. TheAtlantic.com and NBCNews.com. John Allen, thank you. Is the Bill Press Show. There we-